So the, the title is Don't Have a Cow. That's right. I stole it. I didn't make it up. So I'm sorry. Whatever. And we're going to look at Exodus 32. Um, praise God, we are back in narrative. And out of all of that laws and case studies and all that, uh, it's, it's not over. We're going to get back into it before we get done with Exodus. And like I said, we're probably, I know this isn't like us, and I'm sorry, but we're probably not going to do the last four chapters or so because it's basically just a repeat. Everything God said, build this altar, build this. It says, and they built that, and they did that, and they did it just as God said. So we'll, we'll see when we get to it. we still got three or four more chapters before we get to that deal. But tonight we come to this passage that is it's very instructive, and, it, and it's sobering. It's a sobering passage for the people of God. Uh, I'm sure you all know the story, so it's not... Not something you've never heard before. They're worshiping the golden calf at the bottom of Mount Sinai. That's what this passage is all about. Uh, we're not going to get through the whole chapter because there's just way too much to talk about here. We may not even get through chapter 20, so we're just going to pick up where we leave off. Um, this passage is it holds uh, so much application uh, for for the New Testament church, for the New Testament church, and for us as believers in Christ under the New Covenant. Um, the Apostle Paul refers to this golden calf incident in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6-7. through He says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. That's a quote from our passage tonight in Exodus 32. Then later in verse 11, he says, These things happened to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages come. And if you were to keep reading into verse 8 after verse 7, he basically applies um, what they rose to play means is keep, keep away from sexual immorality. And we'll talk about that in, in a moment. So what they did, the, the Israelites at the bottom of Mount Sinai, as Moses is up on the mountain talking to God and getting instructions for the tabernacle and all that kind of stuff, what they did and how it happened is given to us, the New Testament church, as an example for us, a warning for us, because we be quite frank, we're still tempted. We're still tempted by the same sins today. We're still drawn away by the same temptations today. And it's beneficial to see how this happens. So from chapter 25 to chapter 31, where's Moses been? I just told you I shouldn't have done that. He's been on the mountain. He's been on the Mount Sinai. And what's he been doing? Yeah, he's been talking to God. Forty days. We're told in Deuteronomy later that he was up there 40 days, 40 nights, and he hadn't eaten or drinking 40 days, 40 nights. And God has been telling Moses, in a nutshell, how the people are to worship him. They're to do so with these altars, with these pieces of furniture, in this tabernacle, in this way. He's telling them how to worship him. He's giving them instruction. And now at the end of chapter 31, when Moses is up on the mountain, the scene suddenly changes and we're taken back down to the foot of the mountain where the people are waiting. And they've been waiting, we told later, for 40 days, for over, over a month. They've been waiting for Moses to come back. And in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 32, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, 
meaning get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, just taking from what the people say, how do you think they're feeling? What do you think they're feeling? They're feeling abandoned? Yeah, okay, what else? Poor. Poor? Well, I guess so. They're living in tents. I don't know. They got a lot of gold earrings, though. We're going to see that in a minute. <laughs> what else are they feeling? Huh? Worried. Worried. They're definitely worried. Probably fearful, maybe. They probably think God killed Moses. <laughs> they think God killed Moses, maybe. <laughs> they definitely bad. don't know where Moses is. They're mad. They're mad. For this Moses. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. Some trans. Yeah. Some translation says, we don't know what happened to this fellow. You know, like they're really talking disrespectfully to Moses, who's led them through all this. That's absolutely true. I think so as well. Moses has been gone 40 days, a long while. You know, is he dead? Is he coming back? Has he abandoned us? We don't know about this guy. They, at the very least, you could say they're having doubts about all this. You know, they, they talk about Moses disrespectfully, basically just writing him off. Let us just go on and go because we don't know what happened to him. We don't know what he's doing. But they're not just doubting Moses. They're doubting God as well. I mean, they're ready. I, I think, and this is just my opinion, they're ready to do something, <coughs> anything. We're tired of waiting on Moses. We're tired of waiting on God. Been here 40 days, at least 40 days, or maybe a little less than 40 days, we're, we're tired of waiting. And now we know, because we're reading the text, chapter 25 through 31, we know what's been happening up on the mountain. We know what's going on. God is instructing Moses on how the people are to go forward, worshiping him, tabernacle, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there were things in that, that these people needed to learn about how to worship God. You need a tabernacle. You need an altar. You need a, show, a table of showbread. You, you need a, they needed to learn these things, how to worship their God so he can dwell with them, how to live for God. But they are sick of waiting. For whatever reason, whether it's anger, fear, doubt, maybe a mixture of all, they're sick of waiting. And, and so often we find ourselves in pretty much the same position. When we're in the wilderness, we're in the same way. We're, we're the same way. We're ready to do anything just to get out of the wilderness, even if it means disobeying God. And, and remember this. It's been a long time in Exodus, right? 25, chapter 25 to 31, that's taken us a very long time. But it's only been 40 days since they saw the lightning and the storm and the earthquake and God's presence on the mountain. It's only been 40 days since God himself in thunder spoke to them the Ten Commandments. And they were terrified to go up the mountain and they sent Moses up. It's on, they're still right here at the bottom of the mountain. They ain't gone anywhere. They're still staring at this mountain that God spoke to them from and thundered from 40 days ago. They haven't moved. This is the same place where God's presence engulfed everything and it shook. Same place where God gave them the Ten Commandments. The same place where they themselves... You remember what it, they said to God, to Moses, to God, when He said, these are the covenant stipulations, these are the commandments, what did they say? We'll keep them. He said, we will keep, we will do all that you said. We will do... Same place. They haven't moved. They're right at the foot of the mountain, looking at the mountain. And their doubts, their fears, their angers, they become murmurs. 
Murmurs become complaints. And finally, they decide to take matters into their own hands. And they go to Aaron, who is the de facto leader since Moses has been gone for this time. And they demand that Aaron make them gods. Make us gods. Look at this. Who shall go before us? Like, make us gods who are going to lead us out of this place. Make us gods that are going to provide for us. That is an incredible thing to me for them to ask. It's been less than 40 days since they stood before the terrifying presence of God. And before that, they saw miracles and wonder, manna from heaven, the sea parting, the plagues on Egypt. I mean, they saw all of these things. Stood before the terrifying presence of God. Agreed to keep covenant with this God. They knew the first commandment, which is what? Don't have any other gods before me. They knew the second commandment, which is what? Don't make any graven images. And the first thing they ask when they're tired of waiting, when they're angry, when they're afraid, when they're whatever they were, make us gods that are going to take us out of here. But though they knew the commands, what we're seeing here is really what's in their hearts is coming out. We've seen pictures of it all the way along. And every time they get in trouble, what do they do? Oh, you've left us out here to die. Let's go back to Egypt. Moses, you're not... We've seen it. And here, what's in their heart? In their hearts, they're still living for themselves. Oh, when the terrifying presence of God shows up, sure, we'll keep your commands. But now that he's gone, and, or they think he's gone, and it's been 40 days, and things are quieting down, and we don't know where Moses went, you see what's in their hearts. They're still living for themselves. So they go to Aaron... And I want to say poor Aaron, but man, Aaron leads them right into sin. He says, so Aaron said said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. And make sure you look at this language because we're going to see it again. Probably not tonight, but the next time. It says, he... Received the gold from their hands, and he fashioned it. He made it with a graving tool. So he took a tool, and he made the calf. And he made this calf, and then he said, These are your gods, O Israel. They said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now there's several things right here. Aaron tells them to take off their gold earrings, and he uses them to make this golden calf. Where did they get these gold earrings? And who provided them from the Egyptians? The plunder was from God. And what did God intend this goal for? His service in the tabernacle. They took God's provisions. Aaron had them take what God had provided to them. God's gifts to them in plundering Egypt. God's allowance to build his house. To provide for them a place to worship him. And they used that gift to make an idol, a false god. Now, we look at that and we say, oh, those Israelites, what scumbags. But the reality is everything that you have, everything I have, everything we have is a gift from God. I mean, of course, our material possessions are a gift from God. But also our abilities, our strength, our knowledge, our health. Even the air that you're breathing in right now belongs to God. It's a gift from God. 
And so often we use God's gifts to live for self, to serve idols, rather than use these gifts for his name and his glory. Now, this scene, this, this scene right here, is, it's, it's really visceral to me. It's, it's, it's a gross example of this. But none of us should kid ourselves into thinking that this doesn't happen to us or can't happen to us. It often does. And make sure, as I said, make sure you note the fact that the text explicitly says Aaron took a tool and he fashioned this idol. Why is that important? Have you read ahead in the story? Because Aaron's going to lie through his teeth, buddy. When Moses asks him, we won't get to that this week for sure, but when Moses asks him about this, Aaron does what so many of us do. He tells the absolute truth when it comes to what these people did, what these people asked, and when it comes to what he did, he says, the calf just popped out of the fire. Yeah. Lies through his teeth. Lies through his teeth. So once this idol is made, look what the people do. It says, they said, these are your gods, Israel. Some, some translations will say, this is your God, because the word Elohim, which means God, is in the plural. It's always in the plural, whether it's talking about the true God or false gods. So some of your translations may say, this is your God, uh, or these are your gods, O Israel. But then he said, they say, this is your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Do you believe that? After the plagues, after Moses confronting Pharaoh, after the Red Sea, after the manna from heaven, after the quail, after, after well, have we got to the quail yet? Yeah, we did the quail, didn't we? Yeah. Is that in the Exodus? I'm getting all confused. Yeah, after all that stuff, they ascribe the work of salvation to another god, a false god, an idol. Uh, man, if I'm God, I'm zapping them right then. They give God's glory, God's honor for their salvation from Egypt to an idol made out of gold. Over and over again, God proclaimed to Israel, I am the Lord who has brought you out of Egypt. That was the very first thing he said when he introduced the Ten Commandments to them. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. And now they're ascribing that act of salvation to this Egyptian cow god. This is a cow idol. I say it's an Egyptian idol because when Stephen recounts this story in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, he says this, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside in their hearts. Look, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So according to Stephen's sermon, according to the, in, in Acts, He's saying their hearts were turning back to Egypt. They were turning back to the gods of Egypt. So in my mind, it's not a conclusive case, but in my mind, this is Apis the bull, or it is one of the other cow gods of, of, of Egypt. And, and they're ascribing this, this, this work of salvation, this honor, this dignity, this worship to this, to this god. I mean, uh, the very thing that I just can't get over it, the very thing... God did for them. The defining act in Israel's history for the rest of the Old Testament. They're going to be talking about the Exodus and all the prophets and all the Psalms. and all. They're going to be talking about that this whole way through this Old Testament history. And they're ascribing it to a, to a, a golden cow God. Now, 
They had promised to serve the Lord. They had promised to keep the covenant, but in their hearts they hadn't forsaken the gods of Egypt. They still cherished their old idols. Why would people choose an idol, a calf? In our case, you wouldn't choose a statue or whatever, but you would choose so many things. Anything can be an idol. Why would people choose an idol over the one true God? Why would anybody? I'm not saying why do you or why do we, but why does anybody would rather serve anything other than the one true God? Yeah, so you think they were defaulting back to just what they knew? They felt left alone? I, I can see that. I mean, they definitely were doing that if this is the Egyptian calf god or cow god. Our flesh wants something we can see and feel and touch and hear and smell because we don't want to walk by faith. Yeah. Yeah, everybody hear that? Okay, Dustin? Yeah, it's our second flesh wants to do what it wants to do, so we will ascribe our loyalty to whatever idol will give us what we want. Ascribe our loyalty to whatever idol will give us what we want. If we uh, like the Egyptians are stiff-necked people. Yeah, the Israelites are stiff-necked people. Yeah, yeah. And we want to do what we want to do. True. We don't want to subject our will to I think that's what I think. I think all three of those answers are exactly hitting the nail right on the head. We we are we are prone to follow our own hearts, and we we will make. You know, when I say idol, what you're thinking today, idolatry is. I mean, there are places in the world where they still worship statues and stuff. But for us, you know, just in this room, which this is applying to us, and we can only watch our own hearts, the way we make idols is we make a God in our own image. You know, we make a God, the God that we make, he's okay with the sins that I love. And, you know, he doesn't like the sins that you're doing because I don't struggle with those sins. And, I don't, and, and we ascribe things to God that make us okay with this God. And we, we make up a God in our own mind. I remember sitting in, I, I remember sitting in marriage counseling. Well, it wasn't marriage counseling anymore because she was leaving him. And um, she had this lady, this was in Tennessee, she, she had met another man and fallen in love. And sitting there in my office, she said, God put us together. And my God wants me to be happy. And I said, yes, ma'am, your God does, but he's not the God of the Bible. He's a God you made up in your own mind. Uh, and I think that's exactly what's happening. Uh, I put this quote up here. This is, was pretty, pretty uh, powerful for me. It's by R.C. Sproul about this passage. He said, uh, no, that's, we already looked at that. He said this, the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent, but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. Amen. They wanted it because it would do exactly what they wanted. They didn't have to fear going up touching it like they did the mountain. They didn't have to worry about commands and covenants. And they didn't have to do all that. They could do whatever they wanted to do. And Aaron 
bless him, made this idol with his own hands. But I think that Aaron knew exactly what he was doing, and I knew, I think that he knew it was wrong because the next thing he says, when Aaron saw them worshiping this calf, when he saw it, he built an altar before it. He built an altar before the idol that he made, and look at this, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. When you see Lord in all capitals, what word is it translating? Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Not, not just Elohim, God, not Adonai, Lord. When it says Lord in all caps, it's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. That's the quote from 1 Corinthians 10. So Aaron... Use God's name, his covenant name. He was saying, in effect, that this golden calf that they were, going, oh, that they were praising for delivering them from Egypt was for the glory of Yahweh, was for the, the worship and the praise of Yahweh. He was using God's covenant holy name to justify and endorse the idolatry that he had let these people into and i think this this is not in the text this is my opinion i think he knew exactly what he had done and he was trying to cover up his tracks by having the people worship in the name of yahweh but but with this calf i think he's trying to cover up his tracks i think so too now, even if Aaron did believe that he was worshiping God through this calf, which I doubt very seriously, he still knew that he was breaking the second commandment. It said, have no images, have no, no, no things that represent me in creation. He still knew he was breaking this commandment. He'd made a graven image, and if you want to say he thought it was representing the true God, I doubt that very seriously. But if he did... He's still breaking the second commandment. He's using God's name to justify his sin and the people's sin. He broke the command and then he tried to claim it was for God's glory that he broke the command. Is that ever possible to do? Glorify God, serve God in obedience by technically breaking his commands. Is that possible? No. Of course not. It's not possible. Not only do we... Not only do we do what God command or called to do what God commands us to do, but we're called to do it in the way that God commands us to do it. He broke God's command and then he tried to claim it was for God's glory. And then what happens is it's just inexplicable to me. It is it defies imagination. Um, verse six says. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose to play. They offered their worship, their sacrifices to this golden calf that they made. They worshipped it as it, if it were a god, the god. They gave to this thing 
what God demanded for himself alone. And then it says they feasted and they drank and it says they rose to play. The Hebrew word that's translated play is often translated revelry many times in the Old Testament. And many times, if not most times in the scripture, it has indulgent sexual overtones. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, that verse we read at the beginning, if you go back and you read when Paul quotes it, he said, remember they said, and they rose up to play. The very next sentence he says, let us abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 19 later on is going to tell us they were dancing. They were partying around these things. What the Israelites were doing wasn't just idolatrous. It was indecent. It was immoral. It was vulgar and depraved. You could not have painted a more vile and wicked picture of what was going on. They were acting like debaucherous pagans at the foot of the very mountain where the presence of God revealed himself to them and gave them the covenant stipulations. They were doing this after being rescued from Egypt, after crying out to Yahweh, the one true God, and miraculously being led here, being fed through the wilderness, being all of these things. And they were, I mean, this is, this is a, I, I can't even describe to you the picture that I have in my mind of what's happening here because it's so graphic and disgusting. And then, like any good movie, the scene switches. The scene switches again, and we go back up to the mountain where Moses is with God. And what we find out is that God is aware of what's going on. God is aware of what's going on, and he tells Moses what's happening, and he tells Moses what he's going to do about it. In verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and they've worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now what sticks out to you about the way that God describes Israel there? Yeah. Since the beginning of Exodus, God has referred to Israel as my people. I will bring my people out of Egypt. I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard the cry of my people. He tells Pharaoh, let my people go. He said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. But here he tells Moses, they're your people. And you brought them out of Egypt. Why? Huh? Well, he's definitely not happy with them for sure. He's separating himself from the, him, the, Lord, the sinners. He the is, Lord is touchy about his stuff. He's touchy about his stuff? About his interest and stuff. He is, he is very serious about his glory, for sure. Yes, he is. Yeah, I think that's right. Their sin had separated them from their God. No, it wasn't Moses' fault. But God is not saying they're my people anymore. He's saying, Moses, they're your people. Well, I guess it is, but Moses is just finding this out. And when Moses goes down, he's going to be very, very angry. We're going to see what happens. Uh, but Moses, and this is very important. Moses is the mediator. 
Moses is the chosen one who God chose to represent the people before God, represent God for the people. That's going to be very important all through Exodus 32. So he says, your people who you brought up out of Egypt, I think we're going to see this, that God separated himself from his people. It sounds like God's rejecting his people. God even tells Moses, they're down there right now claiming that this calf brought them out of Egypt. And then in 9 and 10, look what God says. We'll talk more about Moses and his meteorship in a minute. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, this is very, very important. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Now, verse 9, he says, I see these. He knows these people, meaning I see, I see them, I know them. They're stiff-necked. What does stiff-necked mean? Stubborn. Exactly. Stiff-necked describes basically a beast of burden that's too stubborn to wear the yoke uh, of his master. This is the first time in Exodus that the phrase is used, but it becomes one of the Bible's standard ways of referring to Israel. Now, when you read the phrase, this is so important in understanding this passage because a lot of open theists use this passage to say that God changes his mind and things like that. This is so important. When you read the phrase, let me alone so that I may destroy this people or consume them, my anger burn hot, kind of sounds to us like God is like a sulking child, just want to be left alone. Just, just, just leave me alone so I can be alone so I can destroy these people. That is not the case at all. When God says leave me alone or let me alone, depending on what your translation says, what he's telling Moses here is stop mediating before me for this people. Stop representing the leave me alone means don't represent these people before me. Don't mediate. Don't intercede for them anymore so that my anger will burn hot and I will consume them and destroy them. God's saying you're the chosen mediator for this people. Don't intercede for them. And make sure you see that that there in verse 10. Let me alone that so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And so this is actually, it's also a test for Moses as well. I mean, the question looms in this text, will he continue to mediate for his people? For these wicked, stiff-necked, they've given nothing but problems to Moses since he left. Or would Moses write them off because now he has this door wide open where God says, I'll make a great nation out of you. I'll wipe them off the planet and I will make a great nation out of you. Now, we'll talk about God changing his mind in just a minute. But what does Moses do? He wasn't concerned about the people. He was concerned about God's name. Exactly right. That's exactly right. But he does intercede for them. He does. He does. He says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. So as Moses begins to speak, 
He doesn't try to justify or minimize their sin. He doesn't offer any excuses for them. He doesn't try to defend them for what they've done or anything. He knows God has every right to destroy them, to utterly wipe them out. But Moses intercedes for the people by defending the name and the glory of God. He, saved, he says, you saved them out of Egypt. He saved them not for their own sake. He said that over and over. He saved them for his own name's sake so that the Egyptians would see his glory. It says that in Exodus 7. It says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. He saved them for his name's sake so the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. Moses is begging God not to destroy his people so that God would be exalted among the nations. Moses was appealing to God's own name, God's highest purpose, his own glory. That's God's highest purpose. And that's why God saves even today. Not because we deserve it, not because we're so good, not because he's in need of our company. He does it to glorify himself. He saves for the glory of his name. And then Moses intercedes for the people on the basis of God's promise. In verse 13, he says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. You promised by your own self that said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forevermore. The people of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai had broken the covenant. But long before any of these people were ever born, God made a promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be a great nation. He promised them the land of promise. He promised by his own name, by his own self, that they would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. Moses interceded on the basis of God's own promise, God's own word, and God's own name. And of course, Based on God's glory, based on God's name, based on God being faithful to his word, Moses' intercession is accepted. Verse 14 says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So here's the question. Did God change his mind? Did Moses change God's mind? Yes? No? Maybe yes. Is God, hold on now, listen, this, this is a trick question, so be careful. Is God capable of changing his mind? Now, think of the ramifications. So if God says, I am going to do this, and he says, okay, now I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to do this, one of those things can't be perfect, because if it was perfect, he would do it. So he must say, okay, this is not perfect, or God's omniscience is suspect. Did he know that he was not going to do it? 1 Samuel 15, 29 says God doesn't change his mind. God knows the end from the beginning. God always knows what is perfect. So to change his mind means what he intended to do first wasn't perfect. So now he switches in doing what it is perfect. The well, Bible says that it's better if he was sorry. In the same way he was sorry he ever Sure, sure. You know, when you yeah, they get that, that, that word is also um, translated repent in many places. So God repented that he made man. He repented. That... Relent is a good word. Relent is a good word. Yeah. Just, I think he was really that mad four verses ahead. 
I think he was really angry. Oh, I guarantee he was. And yeah. I do think uh, Moses entreated him, and entreating is begging. He begged God. Sure. On behalf of God's own reputation. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think, obviously, the scripture says he can't change his mind. Right. But he, he did relent. He did, I think he was influenced. I, I, I think he was influenced by Moses, even though he already knew Moses was going to do that. <laughs> sure, sure. I think that the I think that the answer to this question is found in the phrase we read earlier when he says, "Leave me alone, so that I can destroy them." God was inviting Moses, his mediator, to intercede for his people. And that's why he began by saying, he didn't just say, Moses, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses said, oh, no, please don't. No, he says, Moses, you stop interceding for them so that I can destroy them. He was inviting Moses to intercede for his people so that he would save them yet again through a mediator. Put, uh, put the uh, Israelites' trust in Moses to save, you know, to enter, to mediate Say that again, I'm sorry. Because at the beginning, he, they, they weren't sure because Moses was like, we don't know this spell. Yeah, we don't know. But now they have a reason to trust him because he interceded on behalf of like God's enemies. Sure. Well, they don't know that he's interceded yet. He's going to intercede again when he goes back up after he just goes down and blasts Israel for what they've done. He was given Moses, though, an opportunity to have all this glory in him, too. You know. He offered Moses to make a nation out of himself. Wouldn't that still fulfill the promise, though? Moses it would. Is an it would, because Moses is an Israelite. All good questions. I don't. I don't presume to have every answer to every theological conundrum there is. So, there could have been a time where God was saying, "Were Moses heartless?" Yeah. T testing Moses to see where his heart was. Possibly so. The whole, you know, the tempting to when Moses said, I've had my fill of these people going. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, rem if you remember, Moses has said that before. He's told God, why, why did you put me into, I can't do this. I can't. Why have you done it? God was, the whole point on this mountain, no matter which, where you land exactly on what's going on, or um, I, 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 I don't think God can change his mind because he is omniscient even to the point of, I mean, he knows the end from the beginning. But regardless of where, that is, I can't say that's not important because you cannot hold the open theism. You cannot hold that God doesn't know the future and he's just up there going, man, I guess that, that's heretical. Um, but the whole point on this mountain is will Moses be the mediator that God has called him to be? God called Moses to mediate for this people. God called Moses to be Psalm, I think it's eleven seven. I may be wrong about that, but it said it's talking about this incident. It says it says God would destroy them unless His chosen one Moses interceded for them. Um, and at the at the at the base level, Moses wasn't trying to talk God into something God didn't want to do. He's his greatest purpose is to glorify His name. His greatest purpose is nations would, would, would know his name, that his promise would be kept. 
I think, and this is my opinion, y'all can push back, we don't have to agree on this, but I think God did what he intended to do from the beginning. Uh, he answered the prayer of his mediator. Who is Moses does in this. Huh? One thing that's happening with Moses is in the midst of all this, he's seeing God's spirit and God's hatred of sin. And it wasn't just a kind of sin, it wasn't just a, a letter or level of sin. It was just something that was detestable. Oh, it was gross immorality. And so in Moses' heart, he knows God hates sin. And to the level of I'll wipe them all out. Yeah. And I'm getting way ahead of myself because we're not going to get to the rest of the text. We'll get maybe a few more verses, but this chapter is so, so, I mean, it's so beautiful because, well, I mean, thousands of people die, but, you know, I mean, there's judgment at the end. Uh, But instead of wiping them out, he, he judges them by the Levites. You know, and a lot are killed, but not all of them are killed. And then Moses does something. I wish I could get to it. I really do. But at the end of this chapter, Moses does something that's never been done before. He goes, he says, okay, the, 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 guilt, of, the guilt of what they have done is going to be atoned, forgiven, uh, after this judgment. And then Moses tells them later on in this chapter, he says, I'm going to go back up to the Lord and I'm going to, I'm going to intercede again so that maybe, he says, maybe or perhaps the Lord will uh, give atonement or something like that. And then Moses goes up as the mediator that God chose and he intercedes again for another 40 days. It says he's bowing before the Lord and God I don't remember the exact text, but God's basically, I'm not going to go with him. I'm going to blot them out. And Moses says, then you blot my name out of the book. Moses intercedes with, before God by, by basically offering to sacrifice himself on their behalf. Now, Abraham's prayed. Isaac's prayed. Presence of God's been with them. Joseph, you know, his life, God was always with him. First time in Scripture that a mediator said, I'll take their place. What does that remind you of? Jesus. Jesus. Oh, it's just so, it's so, I mean, it's so beautiful. It's, it's the message of the gospel. God's given us a mediator. And this was written for our instruction, Paul said. So understand, in this story, you're not Moses. In this story, you and I are down at the bottom of the mountain. Worshiping the calf. And God saw our sin, our wickedness, our detest, our debauchery. He desired to save, so he sent his mediator to intercede for us, for our salvation. And our Savior continues to this day at the right hand of the Father, interceding at the right hand by the blood of his sacrifice. And because of this, the way Moses interceded, you're exactly right. God, this is not going to glorify your name if you wipe them out. God, this is going to go against your word, go against your promise if you wipe them out. Because of those same two reasons, we can have absolute assurance that God will not go back on his word in the gospel. He will not go back on his word to save his people. He will not deny his promise. He cannot act contrary to his nature. 
So the word of the gospel stands forever. What an assurance. What an assurance we have. So let's do, let's do two more and then we'll stop. So Moses turns now and he heads back down. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written tablets where the work of God writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. The Bible is very, very explicit about emphasizing the fact that these commands Moses is carrying, they came from God. They were written by God with the finger of God. Both the tablets and the writing on the tablets were God's handiwork. What Moses was bringing down from the mountain was the covenant word of God. It was the Ten Commandments written by God on tablets of stone. And we know it was the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say it here. It just says tablets of the testimony. But later when Moses is recounting this in Deuteronomy, he says when he gives the law again, the Ten Commandments again, he said, and I brought these down to you on tablets of stone. So we know it was the Ten Commandments laid out there on those tablets of stone. And I guess we can, we got ten more minutes. Any questions, comments, anything you want to discuss? We could stop or we can move on. Okay. So on the way down... They hear the party going on. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. What do you think he was hearing? Partying. Well, what do you think he thinks he was hearing? Because Moses says, no, it ain't. It's, it's singing. <coughs> Moses says, it's not the sound of shouting or victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. So they hear this raucous. They hear all these voices raised. They hear all this stuff. At this point, there is this loud, indecent celebration, idolatrous, pagan festival is really the only way I can describe it going on. The camp had become a place of drunken, carousing, reveling, immorality, singing, and what, what Moses heard was what we might call the sound, of, the sound of partying. They were partying. And in verse 19 it says, As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. It was one thing to be told by God, Hey, they're down there worshiping a calf. It was, it was also something to hear the singing. But when he saw with his own eyes what was actually going on, it was much worse than he ever could have imagined. And his anger, it's the same phrase used of God just a few verses earlier, his anger burned hot. There was the golden calf, this idol, abomination before the Lord. The people were dancer, dancing around it wildly, out of control in this, this pagan whatever just going on. Y'all leave me leave, leave alone. It's the sound of singing I hear. Yeah. Y'all leave me alone. It might be Jesus calling. After all that God had done for these people, they were worshiping a statue. And they were engaging in abominable behavior. They had reverted back to paganism as the reality of their hearts was exposed. And Moses became so angry that he smashed the Ten Commandments. 
So here's the question much debated for a long time. Was it right or was it wrong that Moses threw the tablets and smashed? There are arguments for both sides. What do you think? Well, they were the handiwork of God. That they were actually written by the finger of God. I think it is a picture of Moses' intimate relationship with God that he developed on that mountain. Sure. Um, I think... I think that his reaction when God was so angry and said, don't talk to me about this. Yeah. What's the first thing he did? He talked to him yeah. about this. He wasn't afraid. Because mm-hmm. he had met with God and knew, I think he knew God's heart. <laughs> and he became angry in exactly the same way God became angry about that same sin. Yep. So I think it would be, we would be remiss Sure. So I tend to fall on that side as well. I look at it as it's a way of showing them that you have broken God's commandments. Mm -hmm. Right there, you know, it's an illustration saying, hey, these are broken, they're God's commandments, and you have broken his commandments. So here's the two arguments, and you can decide for yourself. This is one of those issues where we can disagree, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, first argument that it's that it's wrong, okay? For that he smashed the law that God actually wrote with his own finger, you know, that God had written this with his own finger, had made it with his own, and his anger basically got the best of him, and he did it without thinking. That's that's argument number one. Uh, argument number two that a lot of people talk about that it was right that he did this is because what we said. The same language is used of Moses as was God. His anger burns the same language that was used just a few verses earlier. And when Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy 9, 17, he recounts it to the people. And he says something that's not listed here in Exodus. He says, I broke the, I broke the tablets before your very eyes. So it makes it sound like it was a way of saying, it was a way of showing Israel that they had broken the covenant and didn't deserve because they had done this thing. They didn't even deserve to have God's law in their midst. Uh, Those are the two arguments. Pick one. I don't care. So verse 20 is the last verse we'll look at. He took the calf that he had made and he burned it with fire that they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it in the wa- on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Moses destroys the calf, makes the people drink the water. There are lots of theories as to why he made them drink the water. Honestly, just don't know. Yes? Well, those are some really bad kidney stones. It's not a pretty thing. <laughs> They're drinking gold. Gold, yes. Oh, that They're would give a metal. kidney stone. Gold will give you kidney stones? No, just the process of solid going through your body is not a comfortable thing. Yeah. Uh, somebody said gold is poison. Is gold poison? Like drinking? It's not? Okay, that, that's just somebody's. There's lots of theories. We Anything that I would tell you would be a, a guess. I don't know. Yes? It's just a random thought, but it's the, the gold would pass through their system, right? And that would be unclean as it came out. Yeah. That's a new one. I hadn't heard that one. He said the gold would be unclean when it came out of their system. Yeah, let, let, let's, not, let's not take that picture home with us. I couldn't leave that. Now worship that. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of people that say a lot of different things, but it's all speculation. I guess the one that, I mean, kind of makes sense is they were forced to drink the bitterness and the consequences of their idolatry and, you know, what, I don't know what gold tastes like or I, I don't, I don't know. But, huh? Yeah. You think he, he just put some big old chunks of gold and they had to swallow it? I don't know. Huh? Yeah. Well, but Moses did know. There, Moses is gonna. It's not all Moses is gonna do. Moses is gonna get. He's gonna get medieval on him here in just a minute, and it's gonna get rough. It's gonna get rough, uh, and we'll talk about that next week. But Moses did know what the first thing that needs to happen is. That idol has to be destroyed. That idol needs to be cast away, and it need. That's not all that's gonna happen, but that's the first thing that needs to happen. So when we think about our own lives and our own walk before God, you know, one of the last thing in the book of 1 John, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. Um, And that is one of the most besetting and easy to fall into sins that we face is idolatry because it is so subtle and it's so, you know, nobody's going to go home and bow down to their house or their Chevrolet or their statue. But our hearts are idol factories, and where we find our where we find our hope, where we find our joy, our need. I have to have this in order to live and have joy and be satisfied. That's your God, and so we have to get rid of those idols, identify them, and get rid of them. And it's a it's a lifelong struggle. It's a lifelong process. Questions, comments. I always like to really give credit to Joshua there that he didn't know what was going. He abstained. He removed himself from that. And he genuinely thought, holy cow, somebody's attacking our people, or our people are attacking someone, there's a war. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he really didn't know because he wasn't there. He was, yeah. It looks like maybe the only ones who did participate. Yeah. But he was up, he, he and Moses alone were up on the mountain. <laughs> So Moses was in the presence of God and Joshua was waiting with Moses. He, he had gone with Moses to the mountain. So yeah, he wasn't there. Yes? Yes. He wasn't in the presence of God receiving instruction. He was further on down. So Moses goes up and down the mountain several times in Exodus. And at this particular time, uh, he goes up and the only person he takes with him is Joshua. So he and Joshua have been up on the mountain for since chapter 25. Moses, I mean, Joshua was further down, so he wasn't receiving God's instructions. Only Moses was, but Joshua was with him. And Joshua's going to be, you know, he's going to be one of the most faithful men in the Bible all, all the way through in, in later, later sections. Any other? All right, let's pray. Listen, there is a chance that we may not have any kind of services next week, next Wednesday. So if we are getting in the building on September 10th, we're not going to have anything on Wednesday because the staff is going to be moving and, and setting up and doing all kinds of things all week long. Um, I will let you know by, I will let, send out an email Friday night telling you for sure what date is going to be the 10th or the 17th, and I'll make an announcement Sunday whether it's going to be the 10th or the 17th. Uh, I'm still praying for the 10th, but... I'm not going to take occupancy until it's right. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you.
God, we thank you for who you are and for all that you have done. We thank you for this instruction, this example that you've given for us, God, to, um, to show us the, the heinousness of idolatry and how easy it is for us to slip into it. We thank you for, um, we thank you for our mediator, uh, God, that intercedes for us, knowing that we're down at the bottom of the mountain sinning, but yet our mediator still loves us and still dies for us on the cross, still intercedes for us at your right hand. God, we, we don't take the gospel for granted at all. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and we thank you for that. God, we thank you that your highest, your highest aim is to glorify your name, God, and that, that must be our highest aim as well. And we thank you that you never, ever, under any circumstances, go back on your word. So when we read your promises, when we read the gospel promises, when we read the promises of what is to come and the new heavens and the new earth, we can have such an assurance because you are a God who doesn't change. And we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to your word. Lord, we pray that you would go with us and that you would help us to walk this truth out and that you would help us to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.